So this morning's reading, the Kriya Sator for Shmiyat is from Parshat Re'eh and begins speaking about tithing. The tithing that takes place. Aser to Aser Koltuvat Zarecha. Make sure to give a tenth of all of your produce every year. The Right, the reading itself will, will take us to the place of the pilgrimage festivals in Shmiyat Seret is clearly one of them. But it begins with this tithing, the importance of, of giving tzedakah, of giving a portion of whatever your yield is, a kind of expression of our collective responsibility for one another that we are to support one another, it's kind of fundamental. You make, you know, God has given you a bounty, God has given you more than what you need, or given you what you need, and there are others who need. And so the Torah will go into that as well, and the Torah will go into that importance of not having those who are impoverished, not being, like the, the fundamental Jewish idea of tzedakah, not being charity from the Christian word from the Latin word charitas, free, but really from the word staka, which means it's just and righteous. The sense that overall that the Torah doesn't have a notion of charity. Right? And, and uh, my colleague and teacher, Noam Tzion, has written four volumes on the evolution of that, of the difference between staka and charity and fundamental structure. But I heard it from a Christian preacher, and I'll never forget it. Uh, he basically summed up tithing or in the Jewish frame of tzedakah by saying not everything that comes to you is for you. I'll never forget that phrase. Not everything that comes to you is for you. It's kind of simple way to remember that. Now, of course, for kids, everything that comes to you is yours. And so the Torah wants us to evolve out of that kind of sen- that sense of grasping. But it begins um, in Sukkot, as the year is about to begin, make sure that you are tithing Tithe, right, a tenth of your yield and bring it, right, and you may eat the tithes of some of the produce in the sacred center, which is the temple in Jerusalem. And then the Torah gets into a place, the Torah will go to a place, what if you can't bring you're, you have too much yield. Would that all of us would have that problem. We have too much. I can't schlep all of it to the center of Jerusalem. The Torah gives you a way to take the monetary value of the thing that you owe. Let's say you owe, uh, let's say, $100,000, or you're bringing $100,000 in produce. Take $100,000 to the sacred center, and then buy, once you're in Jerusalem, as a kind of way of allowing that. Right? You have too much. It's too far. You can't carry it. There's a way to transfer and trans... Here's an amazing rabbinic learning on verse 22. Are you ever permitted, the rabbis say in Masechet Tanit, in Tractate Tanit, are you ever permitted to test God when it comes to, you know, listen God, if you give me what I want, if you let the Mets make it to the World Series or the Yankees, whatever it is. Like, right, the Mets, I mean, we could get... Let me, you know, I promise always, you know, that kind of nadir, that kind of vow. 
right? I, if I do X, a quid pro quo, is a quid pro quo with God ever okay? The rabbis ask this question, Masachetanit. I say, no, no, you should never, Lotinasun et Adonai Lechem. Don't ever challenge, don't test God. That's like, you know, don't test me, God says. And then the rabbis say this, they say, except when it comes to wealth. And they quote this verse that we're about to read, verse 22. Aser to Aser. Tithing. Surely, like tithing the tithing. Aser to Aser. You should surely tithe. And they say, Aser bishvil shetit asher. They read it in a real weird way. Tithe so that you might become wealthy. Test me, God says. Now, I think it's demonstrably false in, in any version of empiricism that we might adopt at this moment that if we were to take some kind of study that, you know, those who would test God and say, here, I'm giving this $10 that I might have a tenfold. It's certainly the case that we have many wealthy people that don't give money and many, many people who are not wealthy who give tons of money by their own standard. What might it mean then? Let's open this up. Right? The rabbis might really have believed this but what might we, like, what might we do with this framing? Tithing so that you might be wealthy. What's the simplest way to understand that and still keep it in the tradition without saying, oh, that's ridiculous? How might we reconstruct that rabbinic phrase in Tractate Talmud Tanit? Nigel Savage. It might be. And I kind of feel as though there is data out there, not necessarily in a, in a literal sense, but I think it's in, in, entirely, genuinely possible for real that if we could do a study of people who give more versus people who give less, that the people who give more actually genuinely feel more blessed, and we can conceive of giving more in a lot of different ways. But I actually, I, I really do think, again, not, not aggressively, but I really do think that it's, at, at least at some level, really true. So, so, so I love that. So Nigel's basically saying this. For those who are here and those online, sorry, we don't have microphones around the room. Sorry about that. And those who are here who know what it's like to watch online and hear people, you know that people are saying things you can't hear them. So, can appreciate that. The Nigel said essentially, listen. Let's be clear about what when you say it's not true. Which which part of it is not true? I think I'm hearing you say. That, I'm paraphrasing you. So it it is. I think empirically impossible to instantiate that those who give quote-unquote money and expect more money in return, right, that that return on your investment or on your giving might not be demonstrably true. But there are studies empirically who have done over longitudinal studies about those who give and giving itself as a form of, you know, not all of my time is my time, right? Not all the time that has been given to me is mine. You can apply that same beautiful phrase from Andy Stanley to time and to resources, whatever the resource might be. Not all of the shirts that I've been, you know, you, not all of the smiles, not all of the, not all of it is mine. And to some degree, it's limited. And everything that is limited is also reliable for it. We have to give some part of it. And there are studies that show that those who give, by and large, have a higher happiness quotient, right? They are wealthier in the sense of Right? They have a much greater sense of appreciation and a greater generosity of spirit. I think that is certainly uh, arguably true. And 
We know it also experientially. Forget about the studies. We know that when we pick ourselves up from whatever we're doing and we give an hour, we give a couple of minutes, when we give, we become right a little, a little bit happier, a little bit more available, a little bit more present. Let's go there. Anybody else want to add? More than we have time. Gesundheit. Who would like to add something? Yeah. Absolutely. So just lifting that up as well, lifting up that um, it could have been that the rabbis were very, very smart in trying to incentivize people to give more tzedakah by telling them they'll have a really big ROI on whatever they give, give a hundred bucks to the shul, and you'll have a bigger earning statement at the end of the year. That could or could not be true. We don't know. It's a much broader conversation about that statement. But what is certainly true is both in what the two of you have said is that um, when we lift others up, there's a greater likelihood that when they're not hungry, when they're not wanting, that there is greater happiness collectively. Right? Beautiful. Let's hear some more Torah. Anybody else have some more Torah? I have plenty to share, but I want to hear from you guys. Anybody? Yeah. Rabbi Rivera? So those those who have Rabbi Rivera saying those who don't those who generally don't have time I mean it's kind of a, a phrase don't, you know give it to somebody who has no time give it to a busy person that they somehow they 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 have no time but they make time they make time those who have no time make time and that becomes a form of of generous giving back as well so time talent and treasure usually the phrase in in, in our in churches time talent and treasure they give of their time yeah aluma. So in giving, they become... So Alama is saying that when they give, and she's using a Hasidic and Kabbalistic phrase, they become garmented. There's a lavush. Absolutely. They, get, they, they become the thing that they're emulating, the quality or the trait. Right? They wear it, as it were. It becomes a part of them. And here they, wear, they become... It's its own reward. Right? Generosity is its own reward because you become generous people. When they give generously, whatever that might look like, it becomes what they wear. They live in that. Okay? I have a feeling, Ken, and then I have a feeling Rabbi Hammer is going to say something, but I don't know. But Ken. So the way that, to help, like it studies on depression, one of the ways to get through depression, right, not the only way, but one of the ways is that one transcends themselves a little bit and gets out of themselves and helps others. So one of the core features of 12-step work is service to the community, service to others, which helps us get outside of ourselves to some degree of preoccupation sometimes, which is not anyone's fault. It just naturally happens when we get sad or depressed and we're not. So one of the ways that we motivate ourselves behaviorally is that we move towards service. Sometimes we can't control our mood, but we can control what we're doing sometimes, not always. And that can be very helpful 
from the outside in. There's a phrase that is attributed to, uh, well, I can't, I wouldn't say she's fallen out uh, in, in, in humanistic circles and in, in uh, human rights circles, but uh, Aung San Suu Kyi used to say, when you're feeling helpless, help someone. When you're feeling helpless, help someone. It's an important one to remember. Yeah. So um, I just want to, Suzanne, um, just want to amplify what you said. There was a, um, the, the great Rav Soloveitchik, the, maybe the greatest modern Orthodox rabbi of the last hundred years, known only as the Rav, Rabbi Soloveitchik, Joseph Soloveitchik, Joseph Baer Soloveitchik, was decidedly um, averse to the institution of Musar, the kind of self-development that developed in Lithuania, kind of a counterbalance to Hasidism, where one would work very much on oneself. It's kind of all the rage now also in the end of the 20th and 21st century. I love Musar. The Rav was not a fan of Musar. And famously, he was once sitting in a Beit Midash in a study hall learning Talmud because he thought all you needed to do was learn Talmud. And he could hear people um, in what was known as a Musar Klois. It's like a little room where people would go and work on themselves. Right, and he, it was above the Beit Midrash where he was studying, and he could hear the person who was upstairs working on himself going, "Ich bin gornished, ich bin gornished. I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing." This is not the joke you're thinking of. It's not that. He's saying, "Ich bin gornished," and he said to his chavrusa, he said to his study partner, "Have you ever heard so much ich in your life?" Ich means I. It's like ich, 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 I, 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 and. I'm not, I'm, you know, I think that was an extreme statement. I think there's very, there's great value in saying I and working on oneself. But he was saying something to the effect of like, you might not know how much others need you. Right? There's no one, the Balatani, the great, the great uh, founder of Chabad once said that there's no, there's no, there's nothing as important to our self-esteem as feeling needed. And that every human being is deployed. Right, very much kind of antecedent to Viktor Frankl's logotherapy and meaning and purpose. Like when you have a why to live for, and if the why isn't just for your own why, right, the why for someone else, right, to be there for someone else, that can also become a shadow if the only reason you're alive is because someone needs you. It becomes codependency, all that unhealthy. But there is something true in what you're saying, in my experience. Um, and Sally. Right. So is anybody here? So I'm, I'm sorry, Sally. So, so Sally said, well, I think there can be too much emphasis on what you, what, what you get out of giving, too much of a focus on the self, right? It'll feel good to sell, to generosity, it'll open your heart, you'll feel happier. But what about, let's focus on the communal need. What about the need of the community? Or what, what is the, the, the right thing to do? Or, am I hearing you? Yeah, no, Susan, what's, um, 
everybody said, like, when you adopt a kid, it's good. You'll feel better. Well, actually, right. she said we should turn that on your head. There's millions of kids who need to be adopted, right? Like, right. I would say yeah. Right. So Sally just said, for those who didn't hear, she was quoting Susan Silverman, who wrote a book about what it is to adopt children, adopt a child, she adopted a child. And um, often people will say things like, oh, it feels so good to adopt a child, it'll make you feel so happy. But she said, really, the truth is, that's, that's not really where it is. It's about those children who need someone to adopt them. And I just want to respond to that quickly, and then I think, this, did you have your hand up? Or, and, and then Rabbi Perlow. Um, I think that we're hearing, we're hearing two amazingly important paradigms, one older than the next, interesting enough, and now there's a kind of return to the older paradigm, which is, it used to be in a society where civic responsibility was an assumption of that, that it was just and right for someone to actually feel obligated, right? Obligation as a category was actually made sense, even if it was a chosen category, it wasn't so clear that it was chosen, it was just assumed. Of course, it's the right thing to be obligated. What do you mean? You owe your parents, you owe your community, you owe your country, you owe your religion. It can obligate you. And over the last 60 years, with the absolute dissolution of the shoes, we're in a curation nation, someone called it. We can choose what we want. We have our own playlist and playlist. We have our own religion. We make it up as we go along. There is and has been in the last 30 years a desire philosophically to root obligation no longer in a sense of superego, whether it's your own individual superego or your mother or father or the nations, but in, hey, we can't force you to do this. Why wouldn't you want to do it? Sometimes you've heard me say here in the show over the last decade, the best have to is want to, right? You can't, you can tell your kids you have to, they have to brush their teeth from now until the cows come home, but that's less than ideal because one day they won't have you over their shoulder telling them to brush their teeth. And even now they don't do it. Forget about that. But, you know, um, at one point you hope that they internalize what was a should into a want. Oh, I want to do it because it actually feels better to brush my teeth than to have them all removed. And so good behavior and motivating people to, to good behavior has become a, a, a billion-dollar business. How do we locate in the sovereign self a motivation that is rooted in not only you should do it because people reject shoulds, and how do we get to a place where they say, I want to? And now we're having pushback, which is healthy, and I think it's expressed here. And Sally, I think you, you raised that voice, which is, well, it's so self-serving to do what's right just because it feels good or it's going to make you happier. What if it doesn't make you any happier? Should you not do it because it doesn't make you happy? Right? It's the right thing to do. The right thing to do, even if you don't feel like it. Which is also very beautiful, just in terms of this being the last Parsha the last reading before the beginning of the year, as if to say to us, maybe you, you all had a great high holiday experience. Maybe you come to Shul thinking, I wish that Friday night and Saturday morning services will be just as uplifting and high as it was on the high holidays. But maybe it won't be. Maybe the middle area is you get yourself out of bed in the morning, even if it doesn't feel good, because it's the right thing to do to show up and serve, to show up and pray, to show up and be a part of a community. All of that beautifully done. Sally, yeah, Rabbi Perlo. Good. Uh, I wonder if one's circumstances or one's capacity is too small for it to become as large as it is. Can you record the beautiful Mishnah about a rich person is one of some aspect of Kohl who is happy with their lot, but the word Pelech means a portion, which is to say not the whole, but only a part. And um, I think that there's a way in which when you give up the possibility of everything, 
So I, I can't paraphrase that. That was too good. Did everybody hear that? Did it, most of it? You all heard that? So, so, so Rabbi Perlo, by the way, is at the 92nd Street Y as the associate director of the, of the, of the Bronfen Center the, of the Jewish Life. So this, this teaching is found in the Svas Emes in, in Ger very beautifully, specifically around Sukkot. That Sukkot is ufros alenu sukkash lemecha, like put a canopy of shalom over us. But the Svas Emes says the word ufros, which means to spread over, also from the word prusa. He kind of plays with these two letters, sin and, and, and sin, samach and sin. He says, ufros alenu, each of us has a prusa, we each have a, a little piece what Rabbi Perla called a chelek, right? We get, we get small to be able to acknowledge there's little things that we can do. And with Rabbi Perla's permission, I'm going to use his teaching to kind of come home for, open up for you this morning. So this reading on Shemini Yatzeret, Dafka, specifically because Shemini Yatzeret is the holiday of intimacy, where God in the Rabbi's mind says, you know, all seven days of Sukkot are universal. All of the nations of the world are gathering. But I want one day alone between parent and child, just the two of us. And I loved that Rabbi Perla brought us to a place of tithing and small, it can be a small act, a small chay, like a little piece, a, a prusa. So I'd like to call forward this morning for the open up, meaning anyone can come to the Torah if you feel called for this intention, to find a small place where you can give. It can be time, it can be treasure, it can be giving $18 a month to Chazon, which would be amazing, all of you, or giving 18 minutes a week to calling. It can be learning Torah with somebody, it can be something, but take a moment now, we're going to take one minute for you to think in to one chelek, one place where you can and feel called to give. Maybe because it'll feel great, maybe because it's the right thing to do, but maybe you can keep your motivation to yourself, but just come forward with the place in your life where you are going to be tithing and, um, and stand with the Torah this morning for the tithing aliyah of Aser Taser. Take a minute, everybody, to check in.